Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to The X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. I'm joined today by Mark Crowley, uh, an author uh, of leadership books. Mark, uh, welcome to The X Factor. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So tell me, uh, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Okay, so um, we'll start there. I'm on a mission to change fundamentally how we manage and lead people. And my book is called Lead from the Heart. And that strikes a lot of people instinctively as sounding like you must be a spiritualist, a religious nut, or absolutely someone who doesn't get business, right? So start there. Or it's woo-woo or like, oh man, why did Stephen bring this guy on? But it really boils down to science. And the science is showing that the heart and the mind work together in a unified intelligence. And that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. We, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And we all bought into it. And we started to like, everything's here. Everything, all of our cognitive ability, all of our, all of our you know, anything imaginative, any, all of our thinking occurs in the brain and the heart is just a blood pump. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll say is, is that suddenly, like in the last few years, you're starting to hear people say, well, we need more heart led leaders. And I think that they really truly believe that. Essential. But I think their understanding is very different. So where I depart from everyone is that I believe it's legitimately the heart. So in other words, the heart is a feeling sensing organ that has intelligence that is informing the mind constantly. And our feelings are influencing much more like the 95% of the time feelings and emotions are driving our behavior. So we say to people, hey, if you work really hard, our customer service scores are going to go up 35 basis points. And people are like, what does that matter to me? Like, that's a rational thing. We think that's going to appeal to people. And it means zero to them. And so what I'm saying is we need to reward people with what I call emotional currency, which is to give people the experience of positive emotions, positive experiences of feelings and emotions that we know translate into reciprocity, into motivation to perform. So the more you care about people, the more positive emotions they're going to have, the more positive emotions they have translate into, I'm feeling safe, I'm feeling validated, I feel appreciated, I feel respected, I feel good here. Mm -hmm. I feel good working for Steven and I'm going to do great work for him because he or a she manager is doing everything that they can to give me those experiences. So we tell people, if you hit this goal, you're gonna get a reward. And if you don't, you're gonna get punished. So the reward is a positive experience. The fear and intimidation that we use when people aren't hitting is the most destructive thing you can possibly do to someone. That's not to say to somebody, you, there are consequences for not meeting goals, but you don't need to ride them all the time and, and intensely keep them under so, some kind of fear and intimidation all the time to motivate their performance. It actually works just the opposite. So I have led my entire life like this. We can get into this, but the way I was raised, the way I was influenced to think about myself, influenced me to manage people in a very different way, it changed my wiring. And then I started to discover that my upbringing had this huge impact on how I was managing people. And once I realized it, which by the way, 
I didn't make the I didn't make the connection until I was 43 years old that my childhood upbringing had any influence on how I was managing people. But by 43, I started to realize like I'm getting something from people that no one else is getting around here, like extraordinary performance, consistent performance. So I started to refine my understanding of it, not to ever write a book or have a conversation with you, but to become a better leader, to become more effective at it. And so what ended up happening was that when I, the company that I was working for, a large financial institution got bought by one of the largest financial institutions and everything about their management and leadership was so fundamentally opposed to what I believed to be effective. Like it was all about fear. It was all about you're this close to being let go at, you know, at senior levels. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're letting people marinate in fear all the time. And I'm just like, I'm repelled by this. I'm getting out of here. So I got a deal and I left and I started to write a book. And the book was going to be something I imagine we'll get into, which is there were four things that I did, four practices that what if you, I believed if you aggregated them, if you did them consistently, you did all four and you did them regularly, that you would get the same results that I got. Mm -hmm. Having a conversation with a friend of mine, former senior vice president of this organization that we worked at, who was my peer, and he knew I was writing the book and he was sort of calling to encourage me. And he said, you are gonna explain why this works, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, so my intention was just to write about the four practices, that's it. Like I thought people would take me, hey, he's a good guy, smart guy, I don't take him take seriously, right? Complete delusion, but that's what I was thinking at the time. And I realized he's absolutely right. Like. I haven't given any thought to this at all. He goes, otherwise people are gonna think you need like a really shitty childhood in order to lead this way. Mm -hmm. And it was so like, I, I will be forever grateful to him because he changed my life with that one quick conversation. So what he forced me to do was to first, like define what it was that I was doing. Like what was the effect on people? Like start there. And I realized like, like, like sitting right where I am talking to you, I'm looking out glass doors and I was like, what the hell was it? And I realized I was affecting the hearts in people. Like that's what made people just do extraordinary things, scale mountains for me since you're in, in the West. And I went at the end of the day, I went, into my, I went home and I told my wife, I've wasted like a year of my life here. Like, you know, I was all ready to write this book and like, nobody's going to take this seriously, like lead from the heart or, you know, anything with this. And particularly I came out of financial services where I'm managing a couple thousand stockbrokers. You come back and say, Hey, Mark just wrote a book about lead from the heart. They're going to go, what the hell happened to him? Like, you know, like, did he have a meltdown or a religious transformation or something like the fantasies were something bad happened to him because he wasn't that guy when he was here. And the funny thing was, Nobody knew that I was always that guy. They just never looked under the hood to see what the motivations were. Mm -hmm. So I ended up reaching out to a world-class cardiologist and just said, cardio surgeon, heart. And could you please confirm, like, is there any truth? Like, could I really have affected the hearts and people? And my wife's basic advice was, Go look for research. You already know it's true. You've already proved it in your own direct experience. So there has to be some evidence for it. So that was motivating me to go meet with her and this heart surgeon, cardio surgeon, who's a big deal, graduated top of her class, medical school, has had PBS specials. And so I just happened to meet her and told her my thesis. And she said, you're figuring out something we're just figuring out in medicine that the heart is not a 
just a pump, that there's intelligence there and that there's communication going on between the heart and the mind all the time. And she said, I started to talk to patients that are coming in with serious heart problems. And I started to realize because I was taught to treat the heart like a carburetor, like a car part. Don't get caught up in the humanity. She goes, we're working on cadavers. And all of us medical students are like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to touch a heart. That's like the humanity. That's like something important. And the doctors are like, that's bullshit. It's just a carburetor. Don't worry about it. Go to work. So she said, when I started to have patients of my own, I started to realize, tell me about yourself. Bad marriages, financial stresses, alcoholism, bad marriages, all these kinds of personal experiences that add tremendous stress. And she said, if it's just a carburetor, it wouldn't respond. Seeing their biology, she goes, that can't be. So she goes, that I'm at the same point right now where I'm figuring this out and you're figuring it out from a leadership standpoint. So she introduced me to this organization that's been studying the intelligence of the heart for the last 30 years. This first time, basically 20 years ago, 10 years ago, when I first wrote the book. And they just laid it out and said, everything that you were doing, whether you realized it or not, was setting people up to thrive optimally because of biology, because of how humans operate. So what you're talking about is how we should be managing people all over the world. But it just so happens that it completely challenges the way we've always thought we needed to manage people, which was pay them as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible, keep them under some element of fear and intimidation in order to make sure they perform, don't trust them, micromanage them, all these kinds of things emanated from traditional leadership theory. And I'm saying none of that makes any sense when you understand how humans really operate. You know, that, that's, it's fascinating, Mark, because what you're talking about is something that I think people have, have, been, have been alleging, you know, for a number of years now, is that, you know, you really can't separate, you know, the head from the body. We're, we're, it's connected. And, and so when doctors, you know, physicians start talking about uh, factors such as lifestyle, I think that's what what they're talking about, but how we actually go about studying it is really, is really, is really the challenge, I think, for the 21st century, because in the past, we've been siloed as professionals, okay, is that the physical sciences and the social sciences are just so different, and I, and I'm talking from my own experience, when I was the head of performance psychology at the Air Force Academy, you know, inside the human performance lab, is that the original idea was to have a biomechanist, uh, a sports psychologist, and an exercise phys physiologist. Now, that never came to fruition. And when we did have, you know, at least when I was there, you know, uh, you know a performance psychologist, you know, and a exercise physiologist, we never cross streams. We never worked together on anything. Okay. So, you know, we, we kind of blew our opportunity with that because uh, maybe we could have, you know, found something. But I think, you know, uh, the researchers of today are much more um, multifaceted, if you will. I think they're looking to become uh, uh, multidisciplinary in bringing in other facets to see. 
And I know from my own work, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking to work with people outside of the social sciences to see what exactly is happening here. Um, because it's, it, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions that we don't have answers to. So, uh, yeah, why why don't you tell everybody what what you're finding? Well, you know, the the first thing that pops into my mind is this idea that um, we're we're all separate with our disciplines. So coincidentally, this woman's name is Mimi Ganeri, Dr. Mimi Ganeri. And she said, when I met with her 12 years ago, she said, in medicine, we thought it was really smart. So you're the thoracic surgeon and you're the cardio guy and you're the, you know, and so you're the orthopedic. And do we ever talk about what's going on in your world to influence over here, right? She goes, we're all intentionally separate. So she said, when you're separate, if you have any amount of ego, you're going to defend the shit out of everything that you know to be true. And you're not going to, in occasional conversations with another discipline, to go, oh, well, that might, that actually might change how I do what I do. So everybody gets completely siloed in their thinking and nobody's growing and nobody's realizing that it's a whole cohesive thing that we should all be together on. But it's the thing that you triggered in me is that. I never would have thought to go to cardio, cardiology, cardio surgery for a leadership book if it hadn't been for, right? So, but then I go there and I'm saying, well, this is how I'm thinking about leadership. They're not thinking about leadership. They're thinking about heart surgery and putting stents in people. But this woman, because she was on a journey to go, wait a minute, that was bullshit what I was taught. That's not true. Like, like she's like, I got to find out what the real truth is here. So your point, like we got to go discover what this is. And so it was only because I had this epiphany that I was affecting the hearts. She had the same experience. She's going down this journey. She's like, hey, we can go down this road together. And she introduced me to this organization that for whatever reason decided 30 years ago, all they're going to do is study the intelligence of the heart. And like just the premises, most people didn't buy into. So there was sort of this, when I first mentioned them, there were people like, oh, we've heard about them. They're kind of like this woo-woo organization and they're like totally legitimate. They're just challenging common assumptions. Mm -hmm. So particularly in business, Stephen, it's like, you know, like don't bring the heart into this. Like, I don't really want to know your story. You mentioned you have daughters, but I don't really want to know about them. I don't want to know what you're challenging. So I'm like, you have a dog? Okay, good. You know, like Larry David. Hey, you want to see the house? Eh, I've seen the house. You know, it's like, that's how we've always treated it because people are messy. Mm -hmm. But what I've discovered through all this is that because the heart is so involved in this and because feelings have such an impact on our choices and our decision, like I literally believe that engagement is a decision of the heart. We're making the decision right now, you and I, whether this is an interesting conversation or there's gonna be technical difficulties and we have to end it quickly based on the feeling, not the thought. The feeling happens first. So like from my experience, I'm like, I'm totally enjoying this. You're a totally cool guy. And my mind makes those interpretations based on the feelings. So if that's the case, then we should really be emphasizing how people are feeling in their jobs. And we don't care. We simply don't. 
So when you look at the fact that since January of 2021, so what is that, 20 months, 21 months, mm -hmm. 77 million people in America have quit their jobs. Yeah. And you think, you go, well, is that normal? Like, why would people do that? And it's like one of the most disruptive things you can do to your life from a stress standpoint is to start it, quit a job and start a new job. All new people, all, you know, I mean, all of a sudden you're leaving all your friends behind. I mean, you don't do that like on a whim. You do it because you're fundamentally unhappy. You do it because it's like I'm being stimulated to go find love somewhere else is basically what it's all about. Right. Okay. We have enough letters on board. We can solve it now. And if you just reorient yourself to, so interestingly enough, you have been in this like sports environment your whole life, right? So you're an academic, you're a PhD, but you're also immersed in sports and sports psychology and working with athletes. And really what it comes down to is that if you can make someone feel that you value them, that you are there to teach them, there to advocate for them, there to respect them, to be thinking about them and how, what are the different ways that I can elevate their performance? Mm -hmm. We should be calling them coaches is really my point. And I made this point in an article that I wrote like six or seven years ago with Gallup. And I said, why don't we just call them coaches? And Jim Harder at Gallup goes, we should, because that's the orientation. If you're managing people, then I got to go, when do you get in? When do you come? When do you go home? When do you get your reports in? You know, everything's about me feeling responsible for what you do and calling out all the bad things you do. A coach might call out some of the bad things, but they're much more oriented in helping you get on the field and perform. And that's not beating the crap out of people or making them feel unsafe or not respected. You know, if you don't have a good relationship with your coach, you're not going to perform well. And that's really the, that's really the essence of this is change the whole mindset altogether. You know, the, the, what you're saying just resonates because really what you're, distinguishing between is what Douglas McGregor distinguished between, you know, back in 1960, when he published the human side of enterprise, you know, theory X or theory Y. And, you know, like what you said is that, you know, some people just feel responsible for other people. So therefore they don't trust them. Right. And then they're, you know, they, they, they're, they're going to basically beat them until morale continues. Right. Right. Yeah. Or you know the uh, the absence of uh, of uh, of uh, punishment is the reward. Okay, and that's the classic theory. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but theory right. one people right actually you know trust people right and know that they have uh, not only certain abilities and gifts but they actually have certain needs that they're looking to fulfill through that job function, right? And if the manager just gets out of the way, they'll fulfill those needs by themselves. And so they're more likely to stay. And so this great resignation has really just been an uncovering of the lack of need fulfillment within the workforce is that people just aren't getting what they need. 
So they're looking elsewhere, wherever that might be, whether it's opening up a cupcake store or running an ice cream stand or, you know, changing to a different, uh, uh, not, not, not a different career, but a different organization to see if they can find a boss who can allow them to fulfill their needs. And, 100%. Yeah. So what you're actually talking about is, 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 you know, we all get enough intellectual stimulation, right? Because there's, you know, it, it used to be that, you know, it would be difficult to, um, digest the amount of of information that's in the sunday new york times we get that daily now right we get that daily but you know how are we fulfilling those emotional needs i mean you're nailing it you're you're absolutely nailing it the one dimension that i would add to this is that first of all you know if you go back to maslow there are certain needs that we all have Right, starting off at the bottom of the pyramid, you got to have safety, you got to have food, water. You know, if you don't have that, game over. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but we're all at this point now where we're we're ascending the pyramid. We're all anxious to 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 get to the top, to self actualization. That's that's nirvana, right? And but in work, we still think it's about pay. So the 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 typical response to the Great Resignation was, "Hey, I'll give you a ten percent raise to stay." Mm-hmm. And like, and by the way, we know that like 90% of those people that accept the 10% pay stay are gone within a year. Mm-hmm. Interestingly. So, but what it says is, is that people are trying to tell us as leaders, it isn't all about pay anymore. It's about my whole emotional experience. And are you helping me personally? So when it comes to supporting people and their needs, we, we tend to think, well, everybody has the same needs. But m- because you live in Colorado, you might like to hike. You might like to be out in the wilderness all the time, right? You so I know that if there's a snowstorm, and you, you like to be the first guy on the snow. Absolutely. You, know, you tell me that. And this, and this sounds outrageous, but you work for me and you tell me, you know what, one of the greatest things for me, like, like it's a spiritual experience for me is to be the first one in the snows. And, and I go out for two hours and I'm by myself and I just feel like I'm the happiest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. Then go do it. Like, don't ask me for permission. The, the day that the snow comes, go Steve and go do it. Now, this is sort of a grand example, but let's say you have elderly parents or elderly mothers and you say to me, you know, I'm caring for an elderly parent and there may be times where there's just something happening that I may need to leave and just go check in on her. Mm -hmm. If I say to you, of course, go check on her and don't tell me, you know, if you want to let me know that you're leaving just so that I don't call you in for a meeting or something, but don't feel like you have any obligation, go take care of your mother. How does that make you feel? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it was a, I, I, well, I can tell you on the opposite side, because like at the Air Force Academy, they don't allow cadets to go home uh, in cases of death unless it's immediate family. So even if their best friend was killed in a car accident, they are not allowed home. And those, those cadets struggle not just for weeks, but for their entire, the entirety of their, uh, of their cadet career. It's brutal. It's inhumane is what it is. Um, inhumane. And and so everything that I'm advocating for is, um, you know, that we, we 
you're hearing a lot of we need more human management. And from my point of view, we don't need more human management. Human management has gotten us into the trouble that we're in. We have there are bad aspects of being a human, right? Putting people under fear and intimidation and telling a kid that is 17 years old that they can't go home because their best friend just got hit by a car and you're not going to be able to go and be with your family and get love and support when you just lost somebody dear. Like the pain of that is already feeling like I'm already experiencing grief and I'm not even a kid and I'm not even there and I didn't have that experience. But it's like if we think about how are our practices landing on people and how are they making people feel? Now, the Air Force Academy, they want tough people. They're going into battle. So some days, man, you just, you just have to leave your dead you know, comrade on the ground and keep moving. That's the lesson they're trying to teach them. In some respects, I think you can still teach that lesson and still let them go and spend two days with their family and grieve their best friend or their aunt or their uncle, right? Just so... Sometimes this is the mind, by the way, that tells us, yeah, that's going to be a good lesson for this, this person. And we don't like, they'll learn, you know, what a sacrifice it is to be an Air Force Academy or, or in the Naval Academy, or, or frankly, we make these decisions and work too, that this is a healthy thing because they're going to learn a hard part of life. And they don't necessarily have, life is already hard. Life is already difficult. Like you were saying, life just throws you shit all the time. And so you're always going to have an experience of negative emotions in your life simply because it, they're, they're abundant. They're, they grow on trees. What we need is the offset, is somebody to say, I'm here to counterbalance the universe. And I'm here to make sure that you feel safe, you feel supported, you have somebody who loves you and wants to take care of you and see you do great. I'm not going to compete against you. I'm not going to feel threatened by your success. I'm here for you. I actually think we should invert the whole thing and take people who are like, you know, 55, 60 years in their career, you know, that age, somebody who's done a great job, live the values of the organization and say, hey, look, before you go, spend the next 10 years coaching the people that are coming up behind. Teach them what you know, because they have the wisdom, you know, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned the military and what's been shown uh, to be promoted into into the military, into the highest levels, not just to, you know, see, you know, senior um, uh, uh, senior military officers, and that's colonel and above. But to make it from colonel, right, to one star, to two star, to three star, to the four star, has been shown that emotional intelligence and theory why leadership practices are really the key. Okay. But you have this whole, you know, bottom of the pyramid, right, who are still subscribing to Theory X and, you know, you got to browbeat everybody, you can't trust them, you got to make sure things are done, right, and, and you know, that those, those uh, stereotypical aspects, but it's just not in the military, it's everywhere else, and so, you know, I have just about all my clients come from the Ivy League someplace, okay, all right, and and, and they're similar to the academy people because they're really smart, right? But then whether it's Chicago Booth or Stanford School of Business, uh, you know, my wife has, a, has an MBA from a top 10 school, right? Their, their least favorite uh, class when they were, you know, getting their MBA was organizational development, organizational behavior. They hated it, okay? <laughs> they, and, and they will not 
they, and, and they have the, just the hardest time to shift their mindset, you know, to that, to that standpoint. So how do we get these, you know, these, you know, these more hard science people? Okay, just like I said about the, you know, about the human performance lab at the academy, right? How do we get these hard science people and, and like what you were talking about with, uh, you know, with, with the heart surgeon, these people who tend to go more towards um, concrete uh, rather than abstractions, how do we get them to flex over to this where they can at least incorporate it because it seems like you and I are fighting the same kind of battle with the same kind of people. Well, I think, you know, so I think a big part of it is, is that the criteria for getting into Stanford Business School or Harvard Business School or Wharton or any of them, although I, I'm going to follow this up, I tell you that they're changing. The, the historic orientation was who's the brainiest guys that we can is the and your GPA. What do they measure? They measure IQ. They measure intelligence. Do they manage your ability to cooperate with another person? To collaborate with someone? Do they? Do you have any creative instincts? Do you like have any instincts on? Um, I'll put it this way: Like, do you have influence, success, other needs to perform? So. We then put these people into management and we're like going to a meeting and we're like, hey, we're, you know, we're 30% down on our revenue. And we don't see that improving this year. Does anybody have any ideas? All hands go up. Yeah, let's lay off 25% of the firm. Uh, I can save you about $4 million. And everybody's looking around. They've all had the same exact education. And they go, hell yeah. Like, you know, and let's do it fast because we can meet our quarter number and our annual number and everybody's like completely high-fiving each other and they don't understand that they've just destroyed the morale of the people who survive yeah. because they realize like, well, wait a minute, let those people go. If we go down another quarter and we're not hitting our numbers, I'm next. So right. like it then becomes this, Screw you, people! I'm not giving you anything more than my doing my job because I know I don't that matter to you, and we don't think about that because we haven't trained them to. Here's the good news: I interviewed a guy um, about for I wrote this article in Fast Company magazine. He wrote a book that was really oriented to like how do you figure out your path to have a successful life right after you graduate from college. That was sort of his target. His name is G. Richard Shell. Mm -hmm. And he was a guy who grew up, I, I get the impression he grew up wealthy, went to Princeton, did very well at Princeton, but graduated at, like in the late 60s and was aimless. And he didn't want to be the corporate sellout guy. And so he got the backpack and literally went around the world and, you know, like loosey goosey life and didn't have any goals whatsoever. And so he ends up getting sick in a Thailand hospital, very sick on Christmas day. And he's away from his family. And he just has this epiphany, like, what am I doing here? Like I'm wasting my life. I got to get back on track and I got to figure out a purpose. And so he goes to law school, which wouldn't have been my first choice, but that's the choice that he made. He graduates top of his class. At 37 years old, he becomes, ironically, at 37, the oldest professor ever 
So now fast forward. So this is this is a guy who went to high went to law school, but he's a humanist. And somebody at the school went to him and said, "We're putting you in charge, and what we're going to do is to ask you to reinvigorate, recreate the curriculum for, for an MBA program." What he did was he didn't say we're going to scrap all the analytics to teach people how to manipulate an income statement. They kept that in there. But what he said was, you're going to learn how to be a manager of human beings. You're going to understand how human beings operate. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, like two years later, Adam Branch shows up mm -hmm. and all of his work is about being humane, right? So like, why would Wharton suddenly attract an Adam Branch? And there's a woman named Seagal Barse who helped me with my book and all of her work and research is around the emotional well-being and what actually motivates human beings from an emotional standpoint. She just died suddenly. Why would she be a warden when it's all about quants and all about manipulation? So, so I have my own podcast, coincidentally, and a lot of the guests that I have are academics and they're from Stanford and they're from Harvard and they're from Cal and they're from Columbia. And I'm not picking them because they're quants. I'm picking them because they, in a full way, can validate my thesis. That's the, so. If you think leading from the heart is a bullshit thing, listen to some of these other people presenting ideas. Their pieces are going to fit together. That's my strategy. Mm -hmm. And they're all just—I mean, some of them are slightly selfish in the sense that they're totally focused on themselves. But for the most part, they're humanists. They're like. Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School was just named by Thinkers 50 as the number one leadership thinker in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, if I ever met her in person, I'd just give her a hug. I just absolutely love her. She's just been, she wrote an endorsement for my book. I'm like, I can't even believe she would even take the time to read it. But she, you know, these generous kinds of people. So Harvard has them, Stanford has them, Wharton has them, Yale has them. I've had two people, Mark Brackett, who's all about emotions. Mm -hmm. So there's this explosion of whatever we've been doing up until now, it doesn't really work. And also the thing that you said that was so brilliant, which is we got to bring it all together. So the humanists are working with the quants and they're one another and have to work with other getting a perspective that they didn't have before, largely because somewhere along the line, we said the people that go to business school have to be the smartest because that's what we need in business. And we know that that doesn't work. Well, yeah, it's, it's great to, for you to bring up the, you know, the term humanism, because that is the, you know, the, the third leg of the uh, psychological triad, you know, there's, there's behaviorism and then there's clinical psychology, but the one that's really under the radar that gets that, but, but, but gets the most amount of press that gets the most, the greatest results in terms of leadership and human performance is humanistic psychology. So uh, I think people are becoming aware of it. We're just, it just seems like, you know, uh, whether it's myself or Adam Grant, you know, we're not leading with, Hey, I'm a humanist. Right. We're, we're, we're leading with something else that attends to what you're talking about, you know, to, uh, you know, how the heart and the emotions actually play a much bigger role than, you know, than the cognitive aspects. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really the reason. Uh, there's, a, um, uh, there's a fellow in, in Austin, mm -hmm. Texas, by the name of Dr. Tommy Thomas. 
And he has a personality theory called opposite strengths. And if you go to oppositestrengths.com, uh, you can read all about it. But basically, just like any other um, uh, person in, in, you know, personality psychologist says that there's two types of people, right? There's thinkers and there's doers, right? And the thinkers, well, they, 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 they have to, you know, understand the concept first uh, and be very conceptual about things where the doers, they want to get emotionally engaged. They want to get actively engaged, right? And they lead from the heart. Okay. And the fact of the matter is, according to opposite strengths, is that we're both. Right? Is that we're you know there's there's ultimately yes patterns yeah there's eight different patterns yes yeah there's eight different patterns but we flex and go into all these not all these different patterns we have a primary pattern a supporting pattern but we but we certainly have a a thinking pattern and a doing pattern right that we rely upon right so you know and, and this was actually developed in the in the 60s so you know we've known about it for this long it's just a matter of combining the two but you know uh, under the opposite strengths uh concept is that when stress gets involved that's the problem that that's when things you know that's when we revert back to our natural innate ways the things that we are most comfortable with and that's when the the thinker who should be trying to feel what other people are feeling and what they're trying to feel? They just they, they intellectualize intellectualize things, but the the but the, the the person who leads from the heart when they really should be thinking about things and taking a step back, they're actually moving forward and want to experience things and 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 get that feeling going. So it's it, it's a problem on both sides. Well. Because it, it's, it's, I, there's a guest that I just had on, well, actually one of them, the author is from the University of Delaware. She's a business school professor. Yeah. There. yeah. And they wrote a book called, they, they wrote a book called Both And. Okay. And so we think it's one or the other, right? So people here lead from the heart, like, you know, so the rational guy goes, well, you can't lead from the heart, first of all, but even if you could, you can't do it all the time, or people are never going to get shit done. That's their attitude, right? So my point is, is so you just summarized it perfectly. It's both. You, you don't forfeit your intellectual. You still have to analyze things. You still have to do the data. You still have to hold people accountable and set rules and all those kinds of structures. And you need to be able to care about people. So if I said to you, look, Stephen, you're a, a, a thinker and I need you to be a doer and I'm gonna teach you how to be a doer. And you go, fine. So now you've learned how to do both. If I say to you, if there's a fire, and you've got your team in the building that you're going to revert to barking orders at people, telling people what to do. You're not going to be you're not going to be concerned about what they're feeling or thinking. You're just going to be that guy. Well, you can start thinking about that. Do I want to be that person in that moment? Like, so I think you can intellectualize the whole picture, which is to say, under stress, we revert to being our the biggest asshole part of ourselves. But if you understand that, ironically, intellectually, right? If you understand it, you can work on that. You know, I've actually coached people on that. So well, anticipate well, the next really well, bad situation. Long, and, so, yeah, yeah, for two guys from Long Island, we know how dangerous that can be.
Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, the heart and the mind work together. Right. That's the point. Yeah. And we shouldn't be excluding one or the other. We need to use both, not marginalize one over the other. They work together. They're intended to work together. The problem in business is we've always said, keep the heart the hell of the way out. Mm -hmm. And there's just simply like Jeff Bezos, for example, is like huge. Steve Jobs, another one. These guys, um, Howard Schultz, these people used data. They knew the numbers. They knew what they were working on. They, they, they had that sophistication, but all their decisions were made intuitively. What feels right? What's the feel? What's the feel I want for these Starbucks stores? What's the feel that I want for my iPhone and the design and how I want people to relate to it? These are intuitive things. So they figured out a long time ago that the heart made them unique. The heart is what amplified their intelligence because it affected people on levels that nothing we can do rationally could do. But if you're just making shit up out of your heart and you're not thinking about the practicality of something, well, that's not going to be any more successful than going the other way. So it's both. That's your point. Well, well I try to get people to subscribe to the Dolly Parton rule. All right. And the Dolly Say that again. Somebody just said this to me, and I was like, "Oh, that she didn't say it, but there's no evidence." Go ahead. I'm sorry. But yeah, if you just observe Dolly Parton, I mean, obviously she writes unbelievably heartfelt songs. All right, I mean, they'll just tug at you and they'll make you cry and they'll make you laugh. You know, they they'll tug at every emotion that is under the human umbrella. But then you you look at the way she runs her businesses. Right there's you know there. You know, there, there's no, there's no error in in her judgment. Okay, so what I like about Dolly is that she allows herself, she gives herself permission to be a full person, to express her full personality. And like the, you know, the uh, what was the name of the book? Andor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andor. Right? We 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 tend to get stuck in these binary positions of who we think we are or who, or how we think the world should be. And actually it's none of the above. Okay? Exactly. Right? And right. we just have to take things as they come, right? And actually just trust ourselves to adapt to those rather than being fitted into some kind of algebraic equation of getting, uh, of, of, of obtaining a predetermined uh, result that may or may not be feasible in the first place. You're right. Completely right. So this is uh, this, this has been terrific. Uh, let, let me ask you uh, uh, one more thing. How do you relax, Mark? Um, so I used to go to the gym every morning, most mornings, um, you know, and when COVID hit, that came to an end. Yeah. And I thought, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? And I live near the beach. So just instinctively, I said, I'm going to go to the beach five o'clock in the morning and walk on the beach for an hour when no one else is there. And I will tell you, it's the most transformational thing that ever happened to me. There's, you know, you go to a gym at five o'clock in the morning and bump, 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 you know, it's like bright lights. Like who, I don't want to wake up like that. I don't want to have that experience and assault my consciousness like that. So like this morning, for example, um, I got up, 
about 4.15, had a cup of coffee, got in my car, got down to the beach. And I walked for an hour and 15 minutes, saw one guy with one of those metal detectors, you know, like basically I'm all alone. And I'm thinking about my day. I'm thinking about this conversation, how I was hoping it was would be. And I'm set for the rest of the day simply by having that walk. Yeah, that's and good. so I do it every single day and on the weekends. If I'm not traveling, it's a two-hour walk on the ocean. And I live near, if you've ever seen Torrey Pines Golf Course and those cliffs where they're hang gliding and everything, I'm walking on that beach, looking up at that. I'm like, you know, but, but it changed my life. It's made me much more centered. It's made me much more focused. It's obviously physical, uh, you know, but it's also sort of this... Who else is getting up at 4.30 to go do anything? You know, so there's there's this, I'm all alone and I'm having my own moment on a beach that two hours later has thousands of people on it. So it's like this gift. I just think I, every day I'm like so grateful for this. So that keeps me relaxed. Well, if we, if we had a beach like that in Colorado, I'm sure there'd be a lot more people on it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, how can people uh, contact you, Mark? MarkCCrowley.com. There's actually a another Mark Crowley out there. So I had to adopt the C and I've grown to like it. So it's markccrowley.com. And I'm on LinkedIn at Mark C. Crowley, on Twitter at Mark C. Crowley. So um, all roads lead back to me there. And my book's on Amazon. Terrific. Well, Mark, uh, I'm, I'm so pleased that you've uh, given your time to The X Factor. Mark Crowley is the author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. Uh, you can get it wherever you get your books. So uh, thank you again, Mark. Hey, everybody, thanks so much for listening to The X Factor uh, this, this, this time, and we will see you next time.